everyone, it's Leslie Keith here again with another Research Update Flash Briefing. I'm the Director of Research and President of the Board for the Lipedema Project. I like to keep you abreast of the latest research of relevance to lipedema with these flash briefings. He is a board-certified family physician and owner of South Suburban Family Medicine in Littleton, Colorado. He is widely known as Denver's Diet Doctor. For decades, Dr. Gerber has researched the science of carbohydrate and fat metabolism, insulin resistance, inflammation, and chronic metabolic disease. And he'll be sharing some of that information with us today. Dr. Gerber also co-authored the book, Eat Rich, Live Long, with Ivor Cummins. Hello to everyone uh, listening. So this talk is an overview of low-carb nutrition and how we can use food as a tool to treat and prevent chronic disease. Insulin is most sensitive to dietary carbohydrates. And now let's consider what happens to the, uh, the processing of the food energy when uh, metabolic disease sets in. So carbs and easily digestible processed food typically drive appetite, but it gets worse when metabolic disease sets in. And we see hormonal dysregulation uh, at many levels including insulin resistance, and we'll talk about that. And we see energy overload or caloric overload. And so important to understand in this uh, diagram, the food energy processing diagram, we're both considering the hormones and the calories are both important. So regarding hormonal dysregulation, let's talk about insulin resistance. A little more on metabolic mayhem. So Dr. Jerry Shulman uh, did another Banting lecture uh, back in 2019 based on his mechanistic research. And he described insulin resistance as an energy imbalance and overload. And we see ectopic lipid deposition and insulin responsive organs. Basically, as we said, fat is accumulating everywhere in the body. It leads to inhibition of insulin signaling. And we see a breakdown of the um, biochemistry at a cellular and a mitochondrial level. It leads to inflammation and oxidative stress, such as free radicals, reactive oxygen species, and advanced glycation end products. And again, it's not just these organs, we see it everywhere in the body, including the, the blood vessels, uh, uh, the blood vessels of the heart, the brain. And again, it's just metabolic mayhem. So this is where the low carb, high fat diet comes to the rescue. And we wanna spend a little bit of time discussing the conventions and what this is. So here's a typical low carb, high fat ketogenic diet where 70% of the calories come from fat. And yes, that includes saturated fat, which is a healthy fat, 20% um, protein and 10% carbohydrate. Now we could use any pie chart here as long as it wasn't that perfectly balanced healthy diet pie chart. The point is that the macronutrients are processed differently as we described. And so there's your first convention. And the idea is that it is the carbs that are fattening and inflammatory based on these metabolic pathways. And again, basic biochemistry and physiology 
that carbs drive um, insulin compared to protein and fat. Carbs trigger appetite more than any of the macronutrients. Now, I'm happy to say that the ADA continues to recognize the benefit of low-carb diets. It is in the guidelines, although it's not up on the top. I'm happy to say that the CFO of the ADA, I believe it was last year, uh, endorsed uh, strict low-carb ketogenic diets uh, as she has been using it to reduce her insulin, actually get herself off of insulin, lose weight, and to control her uh, diabetes. It's a wonderful endorsement. Another convention, and what seems to make sense is that saturated fat by itself is not this cardiovascular disease villain that the heart associations has been telling us it's so for the last half a century. It is much more complex. Again, we're looking at an inflammatory process that damages the lipoprotein, the cholesterol, and the arteries themselves. And we also now understand that these seed oils, the canola corn and soybean oil, are actually very unstable in the blood and lead to inflammation and damage when we compare it to mono and also the saturated fat that's very stable in the blood. Also happy to report that uh, last year there was a, a peer review study in the uh, journal of the American College of Cardiology uh, that said that limiting saturated fat is not supported by the current evidence. And that is true. So what happens when you treat insulin resistance? So this is a dam and this, uh, the water in that dam really represents uh, fat trapped in the adipose tissue. Again, when you're insulin resistant, the uh, energy is trickling into the fat tissue and trickling out. It is literally trapped. So how do you treat this? Well, you put patients on a low-carb diet. You give them 40 grams of uh, carbs a day, and you increase their fat intake. And what you find out, uh, in, in particular, the diabetic or the pre-diabetic patient, is that it controls appetite, they begin to lose weight, their glucose levels drop, and most importantly, insulin levels plummet. And it opens up these insulin floodgates and the energy that was trapped within the fat cell is now packaged up as lipoprotein and it's distributed throughout the body for um, energy. It's fantastic. So it's low carb to the rescue and there's this metabolic advantage for diabetics when you understand the mechanisms and the supposedly high calorie diet seems to be defying the laws of thermodynamics, but really it isn't. You're just not accounting for the um, calories properly in your equations. And we all know that eating less and less often is uh, spontaneous uh, in many of these uh, individuals that go on low-carb diets. And there's a psychologic advantage because we're not focusing on deprivation. We're focusing on mindful living and uh, uh, an approach that controls appetite and satiety. Now, perhaps calories don't matter here. Well, consider this. You have a type 2 diabetic that has to lose 40 pounds. So you put them on a low-carb, high-fat diet. Appetite's controlled, and they begin to lose weight. And they, they might naturally eat less. But I can tell you, after they lose 40 pounds, if they continue to eat the same quantity as food as they were in the beginning, they're going to hit a plateau and gain weight. So uh, the idea is that the quantity and the calories do matter. And 
The focus, however, is still on looking at um, a diet that controls appetite so people are not as hungry and just naturally eat less. But we have to consider both hormones and um, calories or quantity of food. And that brings us to metabolism 101. So there's two schools of thought. And so we have the calorie camp or the calorie in, calorie out camp. And we have the endocrine camp where they're looking at hormones. And I tell you, the vegans and the meatheads, they get into this every year, every January. And in support of the calorie camp, we have the vegans calling it the January as a, as a means for celebration. And on the endocrine side, we have the meatheads calling it organuary. And so what I submit is that we get these two groups coming together in perfect harmony to form the school of food energy and metabolism. And the best part, it is a bipartisan approach. I love it. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about heart disease. And most important to understand is like everything else we've been discussing, we're dealing with a metabolic process and um, specifically when it comes to atherosclerosis. And we see damage to the lipoprotein that carries the cholesterol, the cholesterol itself, and the blood vessel wall. And we address it by looking at insulin resistance and the cholesterol quality, not necessarily the quantity. And the quality of the cholesterol, you can measure by looking again at the triglyceride to HDL ratio, uh, particle size, and so forth. And the proper measurement in this way helps us to better predict risk. Now, what did Dr. Kraft have to say about atherosclerosis? Well, he said those with cardiovascular disease not identified with diabetes are simply undiagnosed or simply said, uh, diabetes is a heart disease. So you need to address it in this way. Now, I think it's clear in the literature that there is this strong correlation or connection between heart disease and diabetes. But unfortunately, when it comes to clinical me uh, medicine, uh, this relationship becomes a bit muddied. And we see this all the time. We have patients that are diabetic that come into our office that don't know that they have heart disease. And then we have heart patients that come in that don't realize that they have diabetes. And even worse, their clinicians are clueless. So that's unfortunate. And the question is, why is there such a disconnect? Well, welcome to the Framingham distraction. Yes, that's Framingham, Massachusetts, where back in the 1950s, they studied the population for decades to see which ones had heart attacks and which ones didn't. And based on the Framingham work, they came up with uh, these uh, risk factors that we know as cholesterol, smoking, hypertension, and diabetes. And yes, diabetes is in there as a risk factor, but it's really at the bottom of the list uh, based on the traditional um, Framingham work. It, 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 it was un underemphasized. And since the Framingham work, they have come up with additional guidelines, tools, and risk calculators, all with a central theme to lower the bad cholesterol. Therein lies the problem because they're not addressing the root cause, which is diabetes. Diabetes risk is buried, and that's what they should be addressing. But I'm happy to say in 2018, 
the American Heart Association guidelines are getting better. They finally, and I kid you not, have included the metabolic syndrome as a significant risk factor for heart disease. Also, they've included the coronary artery calcium score in the guideline as a decision maker, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But when it comes to heart disease, this is really how we should be looking at uh, measurements. And uh, interestingly, this is a, a study by Finney and Volick uh, looking at diet and comparing low fat to low carb diet. And the bottom line here is that all the metabolic markers improve on, on a low carb diet compared to a low fat diet. And so the markers in the yellow are all improving, are all improving. And the, the numbers on the top really look at atherogenic dyslipidemia. And you can see that the APOB to A1 ratio, uh, which are advanced lipid testing, those numbers drop. Saturated fat drops, triglyceride to HDL uh, drops. The HDL goes up, which is favorable. And then on the bottom of the chart, you can look at things, uh, insulin markers, such as, um, again, insulin, home IR, glucose, your abdominal fat drops, your body mass, so these are all associational studies, but you can clearly see that um, these metabolic markers that should be measured uh, improve on uh, the low-carb diet compared to a uh, low-fat diet. So the bottom line, when it comes to cardiovascular disease, it's the insulin, stupid. And I'm referring to my dear healthcare professionals and to understand that we're dealing with a metabolic disease. It's not simply about this supposedly bad cholesterol. And if you focus on the bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, which is what they told us to do for 50 years, you're going to miss so many people at, at risk. And we like to say if it weren't for LDL cholesterol, perhaps everybody would be on a low-carb diet. And so this talk is about nutrition. And so we're addressing cardiovascular disease with a diet and lifestyle modification. It's, it's not about medication per se. So a little bit on cardiovascular imaging. Imagine if we had a tool where we could look in and directly visualize the coronary arteries and see the disease process itself. Well, we have such a tool. It's called the coronary artery calcium score. And again, it's, it's based on direct visualization of the disease process itself. Um, and you have to understand that um, this direct visualization, it's not a risk factor, it's the disease process itself. When you compare it to say a blood marker looking at a, a, a standard lipid profile, which is just associational data, also important to understand that uh, the calcium score really provides us with historical data as to what has been going on. Whereas blood markers are very useful because they tell us the current state of the situation. Kind of like um, the gas tank is measured by the uh, calcium score, whereas the fuel is looking at the blood markers. And we use this as a tool to track progress and most importantly, to motivate people. And again, as I mentioned, uh, the calcium score is in the 2018 guidelines um, as a decision-making tool rather than a screening tool, but we really do like using it as a screening tool as we'll describe here in a minute. So here's your coronary artery calcium score. And so it's a CT scan of the heart. It uses a tiny bit of radiation 
and it, it takes uh, multiple images of the, uh, the heart while the heart is beating and it looks for calcium, which is uh, kind of the tip of the iceberg within the coronary artery where the plaque is underlying. And so it takes a picture, it adds up the calcium and you get a score. And so we have two different patients here. On the right, you can see um, an individual who has um, calcium building up in the left anterior descending artery in the red. And that artery, we call it the, the Widowmaker artery for obvious reasons, because that's where most of the blood is pumping to the heart. And that person has a very high score and has a very high risk of having an event in 10 years. And if you look at the individual on the left, in green, you can see the left anterior descending artery. There's no calcium. So that's a zero score. And so here you can see the beauty of direct visualization, right? So it's determined the risk by looking at the disease process itself. And so you get this calcium score and you look at all the arteries, the LAD, the circumflex, the right coronary, you add up the calcium and then you get a score and you can see with a zero score, your, your uh, risk of having an event in 10 years is less than 2% versus having an a, a thousand score, your risk goes up to 37%. And important to understand that this is all based on 40 years of uh, research that is uh, reproducible and quantifiable. And uh, important to understand that the 2018 guidelines do talk about uh, statins with higher scores, and we do have that conversation with our patients. Of course, with all else being equal, um, the guidelines don't really address diet like we do. But most importantly is that we should not underestimate, underestimate the importance of uh, diet and eating real food and how it can affect um, our cardiovascular risk. Some clinical assessment. So important to realize this, this talk is all about insulin resistance, but it's not always insulin resistance. So we have different uh, body types that we have to consider when we see patients. So we have insulin sensitive and insulin resistant individuals. And so here are two insulin sensitive types. And on the upper left, we have the slim insulin sensitive, metabolically healthy, metabolically um, uh, flexible uh, individual. And we hate that. That's really a very healthy person. We joke, never take dietary advice from those individuals because they never had a problem. But uh, again, a snapshot in time and their status could change as, as, um, as, as, as they age. And then on the right, we have um, uh, the overweight insulin sensitive individual. And so you measure the metabolic markers and they're actually pretty healthy. Uh, but yet they're not at their ideal body weight. Now, these individuals, unfortunately, uh, we see a lot of women that fit into this uh, category. And you can put them on a low-carb, high-fat diet, and it may rapidly control their appetite, but, and, but they lose a few pounds, and, and then they very rapidly hit a weight loss plateau, or the weight begins to come back up. And so the approach is really different with these individuals. With everybody, Again, the focus is to find a macronutrient mix that controls appetite so patients aren't, health, aren't, aren't as hungry and they, they, they eat less and they eat less frequently. But for these individuals, um, you want to think about eating just enough fat to fill, which actually is true for everybody on the long, on the long haul. 
more protein. Protein is healthy, and uh, they don't have to be quite as restrictive in terms of uh, the carbohydrate um, consumption. And so we can compare this to the insulin resistant groups, and this represents two thirds of the uh, adult US population again, as I mentioned. And so on the bottom left, we have these slim individuals uh, that can develop diabetes without gaining much weight. And we refer to them as TOFI, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And we see a lot of Asian population that fit into this category. And then on the right, we have the typical type two diabetic that's overweight. And again, these individuals respond best to a low carb, high fat diet. But again, you have to consider um, if you're dealing with insulin sensitive or insulin resistant individuals. And so that's why we have this uh, insulin spectrum uh, chart that is important to consider where we are on the spectrum. So we have the insulin sensitive on the left, the insulin resistant on the right and everything in between. And then this can change throughout uh, the lifetime. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you haven't already subscribed to our daily flash briefings of tips, tools, and research about lipedema, you can subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, or at this website, lipedema-simplified.org slash flash, where you'll find an archive of all of our flash briefings. You can now also follow Living Well with Lipedema on Amazon Music and get new episodes when they become available. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time for another Research Update Flash Briefing.